Welcome to Lawyerly, the podcast for lawyers and those who love them. I'm your host, Sean Kennedy of Herrera Kennedy. I'm joined today by Tim Johnson, who's one of my oldest lawyer friends. We go way back to law school together at Duke. Shout out to Coach K. Uh, Tim is Executive Vice President, General Counsel, and Corporate Secretary at BMC, which is a publicly traded building materials company. And I'm also joined by Brett Hamd, who is one of my partners at Herrera Kennedy and went to Yale for law school. So, you know, he has an impressive legal mind. Uh, welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks, Sean. Good to be joining you. And uh, thanks for setting the bar so high here. You really uh, put <laughs> yes. me on the spot. So that's great. You're going to be held to a high standard. Uh, we're recording this on Christmas Eve, doing a little lawyerly Christmas special. Specifically, we're going to see if a few lawyers can ruin the holiday classic Home Alone. How are we going to ruin Home Alone, you ask? By treating the movie script like a series of law school exam prompts, seeing if we can spot all of the legal issues that might arise for the characters. So you guys ready to ruin Home Alone? Let's try it. Let's do it. All right, here we go. So Home Alone opens to scenes of chaos as the families of Pete McAllister and his brother Frank are gathered at Pete's home in Chicago, preparing for both families to head to Paris for Christmas. Pete's eight-year-old son, Kevin, is harassing and getting harassed by his siblings and cousins, which leads to his fateful wish that his family would just disappear. For some reason, there's also a policeman at the house who makes his way through the chaos to question Kevin's parents about the precautions they've taken against holiday burglary. They tell him they have lights on timers and locks on the doors, and they're going out of the country the next morning. When the cop smiles, Kevin notices his shiny gold tooth, which tells us there's something not right with this guy. Well, then there's a power outage that night, so everyone oversleeps, and they wake up in a panic as they rush to get out of the house in time to make their flight. As they load into a van, one of the older girls counts the kids, mistakenly includes a neighbor kid who's there bugging the van driver. Kevin's mom confirms the count with the girl just before they rush off to the airport. And of course, Kevin gets left behind and he's home alone with the family on a plane to France. So, all right, Tim, let's assume this all goes way south from here. It does not have a happy ending. Bad things happen to Kevin. Uh, Any potential tort liability here? Wow. Okay, so the the last time I... uh... (laughs) <laughs> I took torts was um, dating myself, but it's been a couple of decades to say the least, right? Yes. Um, can I phone a friend? Can I go to Brett on this one for a uh, tort liability? Yes, really yes. Flesh it out. I mean, sure. I think that there's there's definitely some here, right? Um, as far as potential and going out, I'm I'm you know still uh still hung up on this gold tooth, right? <laughs> You've, Brett, well, how about is the you, daughter negligent? Wait, wait, I was going to say, Brett, before I go to you, you've got, you've got some <laughs> negligence at play with, with the daughter who's counting heads and mm. includes, the, uh, includes the neighbor kid accidentally, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, does it rise to the level of gross negligence? I'd argue we probably rarely ever see gross negligence. But, yeah, you know, the daughter miscounting. Probably yeah. some negligence on the mom. In mm-hmm. in passing it off to the daughter, uh, you know, putting putting a crucial task like that in the hands of a minor, and then if we're really <laughs> thinking outside of the box here, right? 
the neighbor kid. I mean, first mm-hmm. he's he, he arguably maybe trespassing, right? <laughs> um, but uh, but you know the the neighbor kid is is really the cause for the miscount and why uh, why Kevin gets left behind. So you know, yeah, I think I think a good plaintiff's attorney you're gonna you're gonna go hard for uh, for the neighbor family as well. <laughs> I like that. So yeah, that's. Uh... The neighbor kid and the neighbor family, creative. I like it. Uh, I'll give a disclaimer here before we before I dive in. That this is not uh, legal advice. Just kind of <laughs> talk off the top of our heads here. And uh, and I do civil litigation, so there may be some criminal liability too. We, maybe we'll get to that. But civil tort liability, yeah. I mean, my first thought was: is it child neglect or uh, child endangerment by the parents leaving Kevin behind? Because maybe maybe the mom delegating this job of counting the kids uh, should not have been left to one of the other kids to do that. You know, maybe the parents uh, have some obligation to count the kids themselves before they uh, depart. And uh, and it's not just when they get in the van at the house to head to the airport. They get to the airport, they get on the plane, the, the parents just let the kids go into coach, the parents are in first class. You know, that might not look good to a jury. These uh, parents live in the high life drinking champagne and uh, <laughs> doesn't occur to them to go back into coach and make sure the kids are all there before the plane <laughs> takes off. So, uh, you know, that, that might be a, a yes. point I want to emphasize. Yes. That is a very good point. There is an empty seat back there that they would have seen <laughs> if they just stood up and walked back there. That's right. But that's, that's Brett playing to the jury and really driving the verdict up. <laughs> and well, so yeah, that would be, that would be fun. I'd have a, have a nice time with that champagne and, caviar and all the things they're getting in first class, the hot towels. Uh, parents are just not a care in the world Well, uh, poor Kevin's at home. But uh, the other thing I was thinking, if you want to get creative about it, and maybe it's too much of a stretch, but what well, we're thinking outside the box, what about the utility company? You know, if the power mm. hadn't gone out and the alarm clocks hadn't, uh, hadn't been out, and so the parents and the family hadn't overslept, they wouldn't have been in this mess. And so why did that power go out? I think there's a tree branch that hit the power line. And were those trees being trimmed? Was that being maintained? Whose responsibility was that? And that might be an area where it's like, uh, it's, a, it's a but for cause. We can say that, right? <laughs> but uh, maybe there's no proximate cause. I don't know. There's too many other things that happen. Brett, you, you're, you're now moving into the high threes for your score here on this one. <laughs> yeah, I, I like it. Well done. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's a good point about the the parents' uh, negligence here because it's not like they're going around the corner, right? They're going to France. They're getting on a plane. It's kind of uh, kind of an important thing to know that your kids are are with you. Um, well, let's let's move on. So Kevin's parents realize their mistake on the on the flight when they arrive in paris they desperately try to get a flight back to chicago back in chicago kevin wakes up see his wish came true he's home alone he has a great time with full reign of the house watching stuff he's not allowed to watch eating junk food shooting stuff Uh, kevin's mom calls the police in chicago asking them to go check on kevin who's been left alone First woman who answers transfers her to the Family Crisis Center, saying she sounds kind of hyper. The sergeant who answers there starts reading off scripted questions about family crises, which clearly did not fit the situation. 
when she tells him that her child is home alone and she wants the police to go check to the house, to the, go to the house to check on him, the sergeant answers, just to check on him? Eventually, a policeman does end up coming to the house. He knocks on the door three or four times, rings the doorbell once, glances in the front window, radios back to headquarters. There's no one home. The house looks secure. Tell them to count their kids again. And after a grand total of 33 seconds, I counted it, he leaves. And sealing Kevin's fate in the process. So what, what about, what do we say about the, the police here? What, what kind of uh, responsibility do they have? So first, 33 seconds, you counted it during the, uh, during the movie, huh, Sean? Correct. Wow. It's not very um, long. <laughs> Well, Brett, go, go ahead. I, uh, I I got to come out of the gate last time if you want to. Sure, start. sure. I'll I'll take this one. Well, yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, what are the police? Uh, what is their obligation? I guess I was looking at this even more from the perspective of the parents. If things really did go south and Kevin met a, uh, you know, a, an unfortunate end here rather than the happy ending that we know is coming, uh, what would the parents? What liability would they face? And if I were there lawyer, I think I want to say, well, law enforcement didn't seem too concerned. You know, if you want to say this is child endangerment or something or neglect, uh, these are the folks who, who deal with this all the time and sort of set the standard for what is reasonable. And law enforcement didn't seem too concerned and they checked, checked the house and uh, didn't seem that worried when the parents called even. And so the parents could say, well, we tried, we did what we could. And, uh, you know, we acted pretty reasonably here to try to to try to address this and the fact that law enforcement's not that worried, maybe that means uh, we're not really negligent after all. Mm -hmm. They also call every single person that they know, apparently, and nobody picks up. Everybody has an answering machine that picks up. So just happens to be that way. Well, it's just one of those things where uh, you can't help but when you watch this movie today, and I think it holds up really well, actually. It's uh, 30 years old, I think, this year. came out in 1990. But uh, just like watching any like sitcoms from the 90s and these things, you think about what would you do if people just had cell phones, so many of these plot points uh, would have just been short-circuited. But yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, kind of fun to see the old uh, how people deal with the old technology and tossing an address book, a hard copy address book to a relative to go uh, make some phone calls. It's like, wow, <laughs> nostalgia. <laughs> True. So, so maybe the only thing I'll add is, uh, is I recall when the parents called, it, not directly the police, I guess, but the Family Crisis Center or something like that. Um, I think the Family Crisis Center had some, some assumptions, right? That, uh, that, that, were not, um, that were not accurate. <laughs> to uh, immediately kind of downplay and they thought oh well you're just down the street well go home and check on them right um so they came out of the gate um very dismissive if you will and you're working at a family crisis center or the police i mean you you should take everything seriously right um right out of the gate and then um uh, and then do your work to uh do the diligence before you just uh dismiss it uh, out of hand so, you know, that's not maybe directly the police because I think it was the Family Crisis Center or something you mentioned. But then the other thing on the police is, you know, taxpayer dollars at work, right? Mm -hmm. And you're going to go inspect, 
it was a pretty big house, let's be honest. And you're going to inspect <laughs> the house in 33 seconds. You're going to do a, a search of the perimeter and, and determine that nobody's home. It seems like, you know, if we're talking to a jury, right, um, it was cold. They wanted to get back into the warm police cruiser. That was their, their focus as opposed to really discharging the, uh, the duties at hand. He's got a, a, a nice donut waiting for him, some hot coffee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, exactly. clearly cannot be bothered even to walk exactly. around the perimeter of the house. Exactly. Yeah, I, I like that jury presentation myself. Uh, talking about the the liability potentially of the yeah. of the yeah, city Brett, here. Brett's bringing in yeah. champagne and caviar, <laughs> and now we're bringing in donuts and black coffee. This is great. <laughs> there you go. Well, and you raise a good point, which is, what else could the police have done, or should they have done? Maybe they should have gone back a second time to the house. Maybe you don't just do one check and then just nothing. For, for several days, you go back again, maybe different times a day, maybe look in other windows, don't just go to the front door. So that's right, you'd want to make a long list of all the things the police could have done that wouldn't have taken that much extra effort that they didn't do. Especially if, you know, if Kevin had not uh, survived all of this on his own, the, the, the minimal police effort here would not look very good. No, those depositions would not be fun to defend. Kind of hyper, is that what you called this woman who just lost her child? Did you say yeah. tell them to count their kids again because you couldn't be bothered to spend another 30 seconds searching for him yourself? Yeah, that is a, that'd be difficult. Yeah, there you go. All right, so meanwhile, Kevin's family is trying to get on a plane back to Chicago. After some hijinks involving a stolen toothbrush and Kevin running away from the police, he's heading back home and narrowly avoids getting hit, hit by a van driven by Harry and Marv, our two burglars known as the Wet Bandits, one of whom is the cop from the first scene. Kevin recognizes Harry's gold tooth and realizes they're robbers, so he determines to be ready for them when they come. That night, when the Wet Bandits arrive, they see what appears to be a dinner party going on in what was supposed to be an empty house. Kevin has outsmarted them with mannequins attached to ropes and a record player, along with a life-size cutout of Michael Jordan moving around on electric train. They come back the next day, and Marv takes a closer look, only to be scared away again by the audio of a gangster movie Kevin puts on, punctuated by lighting off a bunch of fireworks. Wet bandits then hide out and see, if, and see Kevin come out, to cut down a Christmas tree from his yard. Harry creeps up to the window and sees Kevin decorating the tree. He understands now that Kevin is home alone. Before the wet bandits leave, Kevin ov overhears them talking outside, saying they'll be back to rob the house that night at nine o'clock. Now is where the real action begins. In the final hour before nine o'clock, Kevin hatches an elaborate plan to protect his house from the wet bandits. We see his hand-drawn plans where he's mapped out a series of traps for them. At nine o'clock, they arrive and knock on the door to the kitchen. But Kevin aims his BB gun out through the dog door and shoots Harry in the crotch. Score one for Kevin. And inexplicably, Marv pokes his head through the dog door and Kevin shoots him in the face. <laughs> okay, so for the non-lawyers <laughs> listening, 
what on earth could be wrong about booby trapping your home to protect it from burglars? That sounds totally logical. Well, it, it does have a certain common sense appeal. And I think, uh, I think back to my property class, we were talking about this in torts too, this concept of self-help. Sometimes people feel they have to take things into their own hands and a, a little self-help is what's necessary, but uh, maybe not here. Maybe that should be a last resort. And uh, I think booby traps in particular, it's interesting. Uh, there can be liability there if you're the one setting the trap, even if it's your own home. And even though generally people do have the right to defend themselves in their home, although I think that varies state to state different wrinkles depending on state law. But when it comes to booby trapping, I think usually, at least in California, I'm pretty sure you can't just set something up that could cause serious bodily injury to someone uh, and it's just triggered automatically. So it could be any unsuspecting person that walks into the trap. That is uh, not okay. Yeah, there's sort of the law school um, examples of somebody breaking in and, and hitting an electrified gate or something like that you know and and then that burglar would-be burglar ends up suing the homeowner and you as a first-year lawyer like wait what they can't (laughs) sue for that yeah Um, or a bb gun yes you can yeah yeah (laughs) yeah i remember there being like a dart gun or a bb gun case something like that where it's triggered automatically when somebody breaks a door open and uh yeah yeah, you could have mm-hmm. some tort liability on your hands as the uh, homeowner if you yeah. do that. So the question what, is, is Kevin in trouble here? Well, what's interesting here, right, is the booby trap liability absolutely is, is, is you guys were just uh, discussing. But, you know, those cases, if I recall, were typically around, you know, booby trapped and protecting your property, which, which Kevin is, is arguably doing. But... I think you also have the self-defense nature um, or aspect here, right? Mm-hmm. Because because Kevin is in the home, um, and then you know I, I think the movie's set in in Chicago, if I yep. recall. I think that's where their home is, and and uh, I, I don't I'm not licensed in Illinois, and, and <laughs> uh, full disclosure and my disclaimer, <laughs> not entirely sure what Illinois law would be on this, but but you know reasonable. Uh, you, you can generally take reasonable measures with respect to uh, self-defense, um, but but you can't go, you can't employ excessive measures. So, you know, if I focus on the BB gun, right, which is a great scene, and and I've got to say as an aside, I I, I now need to go watch this movie again. Um, <laughs> but uh, but on the BB gun, I mean, it's a BB gun, right? It just sort of stings, doesn't even really break skin. So. I think uh, I, I think Kevin is uh, is probably fine um, from my standpoint with respect to uh, the BB gun. There are so many different issues and rabbit trails we can take on this. I mean, you think about his discharging of the uh, of the fireworks um, or firecrackers, if you will, in the in the pot. Um, you know, I don't know those. Th- those those are illegal in uh, in many states, right? <laughs> True. Um, he may have liability for uh, for those firecrackers um, and putting them off in in the pot. And then you think, from a burglar's perspective, you know, what if they had hearing damage or, or anything of that nature? <laughs> and I start to 
think about <laughs> all the uh, potential liability that Kevin could have and and trickling up to his parents. So, but yeah, that's that's good. That's really good. Now we didn't mention that Kevin pulled the same trick, minus the fireworks, but with the just the gunshot from the gunshot sounds from the video uh, when the pizza guy shows up, and the pizza right. guy terrified at the at the sound of this vhs video in the house uh, <laughs> runs away and and slips and falls himself now there now now we're talking i'd like to represent that guy well you might be talking <laughs> intentional infliction of emotional distress right there you go um on the poor pizza guy um only to throw one more on on the table is uh what about Michael Jordan? Um, mm. You know, I guess it's probably more on the movie, but, you know, hope they got uh, his consent to use his likeness <laughs> um, back to uh, deterring the, uh, the burglars. So. Yeah. Very well, and then point. we should also mention uh, Kevin, not totally blameless here. Well, he may have the, the using the movie to scare the pizza driver off the pizza delivery person. Maybe that's assault. If he put the, pizza delivery guy in uh, imminent fear mm -hmm. of, uh, of injury, even if there wasn't actually a battery. I think sometimes people don't realize, I mean, just putting someone in fear of an immediate injury could, could be an assault. So we got to look at that. And you also can't forget the toothbrush that Kevin took out of the uh, convenience store. Yeah. Shoplifting, maybe? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Serious, serious criminal activity going on here, for sure. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, the, the idea of self-defense, make the case. One of you make the case for, uh, for Kevin here. What are, the, what are the factors that best support the self-defense narrative? Well, I would say for the BB gun, because that's not a booby trap, right? He's got the BB gun. He sees the burglars trying to come through the door, and that's when he opens fire. Although I guess he pokes it out of the door. The first shot is fired before they've tried. They've really come in they're still standing on the porch but i, I think yeah. you could say look he's in um reasonable fear of um of injury that they're going to come into the house and possibly hurt him mm -hmm. and he believes he has to use force to defend himself i think you could say that looks pretty reasonable under the circumstances he's an eight-year-old boy these are two pretty scary looking guys coming uh trying to come in the house and then the question is, I think, did he use a reasonable amount of force? And, um, you know, as Tim pointed out, it's a BB gun. So not likely to cause really serious injury, maybe just a you know, momentary sting. And so uh, that's what I would mm -hmm. say in terms of self-defense. Looks pretty reasonable. Yeah, I, I look back as well. The key kind of point to me is Kevin overhears them talking, right? Saying they're coming back. And they're gonna rob the place at nine o'clock. Yeah. So he he has reason to know, you know, what these guys are are up to. But does he have a duty to just leave? That that's that's an excellent question, right? Because he, <laughs> to your point, Sean, he knows that they're going to rob it, but mm -hmm. he he has no idea whether or not they're, uh, you know they're going to inflict any harm on uh, on Kevin, right? Um, yes, they want the possessions, but who knows? Maybe they'll take the possessions and be 
you know, a, a good Samaritan all rolled into one and, and pick up Kevin and drop him off at a, at a fire station <laughs> or something uh, on their way back to, uh, to their, you know, their, their camp or something. Um, you know. Well, remember where Kevin is at eight o'clock. At eight o'clock, he's at a church. That's right. Listening oh, that's to a right. choir. He's <laughs> in no danger at this church. All he yeah. has to do is say, hey, uh, there's some people coming to rob my place. No, yeah. he turns around and he runs back to that house as fast as he can so that he can set up all of this. Yeah, he's, he, is, he, is, he is putting himself directly in potential harm's way. So, um, so yeah, I mean, to, to the question is, is Kevin taking reasonable measures um, to protect his, his home and uh, himself. Arguably, no, right? Um, mm-hmm. He should have told people at church. Uh, you know, he, he could have run into a number of people while he was, he was on his way to the store or church um, or back to the home. Um, I mean, he did run into the clerk there. Um, mm-hmm. He even had police officers chasing him, right? <laughs> he could have stopped and said, yes. I took the toothbrush, but guess what? Um, you know, so yes. yeah, I think there's a pretty good case to be made that uh, that he did not act reasonably. But in his defense, he is eight years old, and uh, as you led this off, Sean, this is why is they do not let lawyers write movies. Or <laughs> <laughs> True. True. <laughs> All right, so. One last question there. What if Kevin had shot poor Marv's eye out with the uh, with the BB gun? Mm. He did. No, this is different, though, right? Than him sticking the gun out the door and shooting somebody in in the clothes. You know, this guy is poking his face directly at him. He's lucky he didn't shoot him in the eye. Does that yeah. change anything? Well, yeah, and this might have had a, a different rating. Now we're talking, depending on how graphic that uh, <laughs> that shot is, you might be looking at a R-rated version of Home Alone. But uh, <laughs> that's the remake. That's the 2020 remake. 2021. Okay, think, yeah. So I think one question would be: uh, Was it intentional? Was he aiming at his eye, or was he really just aiming at his head and trying trying to keep him out, or not even able to really think about it, just reacting? in fear, in imminent fear of this uh, burglar coming through the doggy door. I guess you could say, well, he's not going to get his whole body through there. He's just got his head through there. So, you know, mm-hmm. maybe maybe Kevin could have waited a minute or two to see what was going to happen, size up the situation. But um, was it intentional? Was he really trying to shoot his eye out? Or was that was that more accidental? And then you might get into this, this idea of imperfect self-defense, too, where, you know, not everything goes... Um, perfectly maybe kevin was under a misapprehension of how how imminent the danger was but you might say well but under the circumstances and he's eight years old and everything um you cut him a little slack yeah and these guys are engaged in a uh a rather risky uh, activity breaking into somebody's home when somebody is there uh gonna be tough to to make out a claim for them in that way All right, so undeterred, well, from there, Marv heads to the basement. Harry goes around front. They figure the kitchen door is off limits now. 
it's too too well armed. But Kevin is prepared for this by spraying water on the steps to both doors, which is now turned to ice. Both Harry and Marv take devastating falls, which appears sure to have inflicted massive head trauma on on both of them. How about now? Any any uh, change in in what we're talking about? Well, yeah, I mean, that looks problematic to me because like we were talking about earlier, this idea of booby trapping, uh, you know, there may be a liability there. This was set up in a way that any anyone could have fallen down those stairs, any unsuspecting person, a police officer, for example, who had come to check on the house or, mm-hmm. uh, God forbid, another pizza delivery person. <laughs> Kevin had, uh, you know, been in the mood for more pizza. Could have been really bad. Mailman. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. A neighbor, a concerned neighbor who might have come by, could have uh, slipped down those stairs, and then you're definitely looking at uh, potential liability. I would think for doing doing that, putting the water on the stairs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree that that's squarely in the uh, in the booby trap. Um, I mean, you could make an argument around uh, around self defense because I think that's the motivation for it, right? But you have absolutely opened yourself up to liability to other third parties. Um, who, uh, who may be there, as Brett mentioned, police, um, if they're coming, if they've been injured. So um, mm-hmm. while, it, while, it was a great, uh, while it was a great tactic in the movie, a, a one that is not without a, uh, a degree of risk, to say the least. I, I might advise Kevin against it on the whole. Yeah. yeah. I do want to add, and we'll get into all of these other horrible things that happen to these burglars, but in terms of civil liability, right, if you're talking about personal injury or something, uh, they seem okay at the end, sort of improbably. (laughs) They've survived, and some momentary unpleasantness has happened, but they don't seem to have uh, long-term injuries. So, you know, I would argue, well, even if there's liability here, maybe the damages are minimal. Yeah. Yeah, These guys are akin to the Terminator, but we'll get to that. Uh, So Marv makes his way into the basement. He gets in there eventually, and he goes to turn on the light. But the cord is attached to an iron all the way up on the second floor, which drops down the laundry chute straight on to his upturned face. Ouch. And Harry is in for worse somehow at the front door perhaps, where he grabs onto a scalding hot door handle that Kevin has heated all the way to a red glow with some sort of heater that's affixed to the other side of the door. Back in the basement, Marv steps barefoot onto a large nail that Kevin has affixed in sticky tar on the stairs, ensuring him that he loses his his, uh, shoes in the process. And meanwhile, Harry makes his way to the kitchen door again and when he steps in he's greeted by a blowtorch to the top of his head which kevin is rigged to go off when the door is open marv gives up on the basement route and decides to climb into a window instead when he does he steps barefoot on glass ornaments that kevin has arranged on the floor under the window which marv <laughs> proceeds to break and grind shards into his feet somehow uh, just horrible it's horrible yes. yeah Still, the wet bandits keep coming. They meet at the bottom of the staircase where they slip and fall again on toy cars 
that Kevin has arranged for that purpose, which, by the way, is foreshadowed in the opening scene of the movie with his dad saying, I nearly killed myself on, on your stupid micro-machines. I told you not to leave those on the floor. Oh. Standing at the top of the stairs, Kevin targets each of them as they're getting up from falling down on the cars with paint cans, which swing down on strings and crush each of them directly in the face. So these are some devastating booby traps. We've moved way up the, we've ratcheted way up now. Definitely should have put both of these guys in the hospital multiple times here. Um, any problem with this? Is this overkill? Well, yeah, I mean, first I got to say, I don't know about you guys, but watching this movie again, and it had been a while since I'd seen it, uh, boy, some of these these booby traps were just seared into my memory. I mean, I can remember <laughs> seeing that M from the door handle seared into uh, the burglar's hand after he touches the red hot yep. handle, or seeing the nail go into the guy's uh, foot as he's going up the tar-covered stairs. Mm. It's like, oh, yes. It's even harder to watch, I think, <laughs> these days than when I was a kid. It's just, oh, oh it's yeah. brutal. It's just brutal. Yeah. But, it, uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of whether this is problematic, I would say, yeah, these booby traps are super problematic. Uh, really can't be doing that. Although I guess you could argue it's not like these were set up with just anyone in mind or some unsuspecting person could, could have walk, walked into them. Kevin knew these burglars were coming, knew the time they were coming, set these up specifically to target them. So you could say, well, it's self-defense. But I think you still have this problem that if an unsuspecting person had come across them, uh, they could have been injured. And so that that's a major problem. And then ironically, out of all of these different things we talked about, the glass ornaments, the nail in the tar, the overheated doorknob, those are all booby traps. But the paint cans, because mm -hmm. Kevin was controlling those and he swung those, at the burglar's faces, uh, maybe it's in a slightly different category. Not really a booby trap. That's more clearly just self-defense. Yep. Yeah. The, the one nice thing about, um, I say nice. <laughs> we were, we, previously, we were, we were speaking about him icing up the stairs, right? Um, and clearly a higher risk for an unsuspecting person to, uh, to slip and fall. Um, now we're getting into, yes, some booby traps and some just, um, you know, directed, uh, tactics as far as swinging the paint cans or whatnot. But now the difference here is in order to encounter those booby traps, they have to be making an effort to enter the home, right. Mm -hmm. Or have entered the home. Um, you're only going to step on the nail, which yes, is very cringeworthy, particularly now, um, as an adult, right? Yeah. If you're trying to climb the stairs, you're, you're only grinding shards of ornaments into your feet. If you've climbed through the window, um, and are, uh, and are trying to, uh, to rob the house. Right. Um, so, so that's what, you know, I, I think, probably weighs in favor of, of Kevin on the, on those booby traps combined with what Brett mentioned earlier that shockingly uh, the wet bandits seem fine um, when you get to the end of the movie. Right. Um, so, so their damages are, are de minimis if, if any um, arguably. So that weighs in favor of Kevin, the, the doorknob, well, horribly creative. I think he was using a, 
like a charcoal lighter, I think is what mm. he hung on the uh, on the interior and going up. While creative, that does carry a, a higher risk that an unsuspecting person, you know, police officer coming to check, a neighbor that gets home is coming to check, anybody from the family crisis center. Um, so that carries, like the ice stairs, a, a high degree of risk um, that you might be liable to to another third party who is appropriately just trying to see um, check on the status of the house and whether or not Kevin is is safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and then you know, so that's a really good point. Sort of dividing up the the different booby traps in terms of how likely it would be that someone might encounter it without having come into the house or taken you know, more, more and more steps to try to get deeper into the house. And something that dovetails with that is an idea that the burglars, once they've encountered one or two of these booby traps, I mean, they're really on notice now. They're, they were never <laughs> unsuspecting people, but with each one of these, the fact that they come back for more, it's like, well, they're really on notice that anything <laughs> yeah. could happen. Once the iron falls down the laundry chute onto your face, you're going to think, okay, I don't know what's coming next, but it's probably not good. Yeah. Anything could happen. And so the fact that they don't retreat at that point, I think certainly makes them less sympathetic. If they were going to be a tort plaintiffs, it's going to make it increasingly difficult. Yeah. Put, put it, that's an excellent point, Brett. Put another way. Hey, if they weren't deterred by an iron falling on their head or a nail being, being driven into their foot, hey, Kevin only has to, he, he now has to ramp up the mm-hmm. the level of of force that he's using if they weren't deterred by a nail yeah now i need to you know swing you know multiple paint cans at him or whatever he's just it, it does set him up to to use greater and greater force yeah that's a good point yeah kevin has learned that they're essentially walking terminators and uh harry sits there <laughs> he sits there for i think three four seconds under the full brunt of the uh the flamethrower on his head it's not <laughs> long enough to, for his hat to burn away his hair to burn away yeah so <laughs> having seen all of that i think i think kevin is reasonably apprehensive that these guys are you know, that they're on something they're you know some some force has to be applied to stop them well, and if you want to talk about out-of-the-box uh, tort liability, when the, the, the blowtorch hits his head and then uh, he runs out outside the house and his head is still on fire and then he has to go dunk it in the snow to put out that fire, he, he might be looking at, was this, uh, was this made with fire-retardant materials? You know, <laughs> Is this uh, something that should have been foreseeable? Is there a product liability uh, claim here? You know, Yeah, sure, he was hit with this blowtorch, but having the hat on, if the hat was burning... Uh, sort of out of control or exacerbated it, maybe he's yeah. got a claim against the uh, manufacturer. Excellent point. You know, a lot of uh, tort cases are built on this idea. Sure, I was 90% at fault here, but who's to say that the the own, the, uh, the manufacturer of this hat minus proper flame retardation, um, yeah. you know, isn't liable for the other 10%, which... Yeah. Well, and, and then that, that's one of the concepts I remember from torts, uh, taking the torts class very well, which is the deep pocket. You always, yeah. and as a plaintiff's lawyer doing plaintiff's cases, you always got to look at the, who the deep pocket might be. And although Kevin and his family seem pretty well off, uh, you know, they may face bankruptcy. I mean, a lot of people 
think you could say a large percentage of the population is what's called judgment proof, meaning you can't really enforce a, a civil judgment. They don't have the assets, but the maker of this, uh, this beanie that the burglar was wearing, you know, they might be the deep pocket here. So gotta, gotta yeah. look at that. I was going to say, congratulations, Brett. You found the deep pocket. Right? <laughs> Very far removed, but that's who's, uh, that's what makes this uh, worthwhile for plaintiff's attorneys. That was well go. done. So according to a Mythbusters episode I saw a while back, the paint cans definitely would have crushed their skulls and killed them almost instantly <laughs> like that. Uh, so... Oh, yeah. This is now a, a wrongful death case by the heir, <laughs> you know, the, the administrators of their estate. And Kevin is the one who swings the cans. Does he have any criminal liability here? Just manslaughter? Is he tried as an adult? Um, yeah, what's, what's he facing? Well, you got to look again, I think, at self-defense. I mean, he might have a complete defense. You, you got to look at the context, right? These guys have survived the red hot door handle, the nail into the foot, the red hot iron falling through the laundry chute, uh, the micro machines on the floor. They survived all of that. And so is swinging the paint cans at them uh, a reasonable amount of force? Yeah, I think a lot of people would think it was. And so uh, Kevin, maybe he gets off completely scot-free because of that. It's a very good point. Maybe Maybe to Kevin's defense, too, if, if it required Mythbusters to inform us that the paint cans would have crushed their skull and uh, and killed them, if that wasn't readily apparent without Mythbusters, how would that be readily apparent to an eight-year-old? I mean, you, you would think that it was, yeah, a reasonable amount of force, particularly given what, uh, what Brett outlined, that they had, uh, they had pressed through um, to get to the point where he had – he was – he he had to hit him with paint cans, right? Otherwise, he uh, he he would have been in harm's way himself. So, well, and this raises um, a good point about how how would this play out in court if he did have a wrongful death lawsuit? I would say the family or the um, the estate of these burglars they would have an expert possibly to come in and talk about uh, the effects of the paint cans and that this this should have been foreseen or whatever that the risk of this is is high. And then Kevin, if we're representing Kevin, we'd want to find an expert, of course, to say uh, it doesn't seem that dangerous. And maybe you have a battle of the experts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I think, think that's, that's would a very... because, because there is going to be a – if paint cans crush their skull, there is going to be a wrongful death lawsuit, right? And I think uh, you, you absolutely will have a battle of the experts and determine, okay, what was reasonable for us and what was not. Now, now the other um, – you know, wrongful death being on, on, you know, maybe the civil but uh, side, but on the criminal side, the interesting thing is, you know, he is only eight, right? So was it egregious enough to, to your point, Sean, where he's going to be tried as an adult um, from a criminal standpoint? Um, and again, you, you kind of, you, I guess you, you probably bring the parents back into this, right? And you say, what level of negligence? Um <laughs> you know, from the parents of putting their eight-year-old in this position to where he had to make a decision whether or not to release a paint can, um, you know, a deadly weapon um, at some intruders. So, Very good point. Now, you, you also introduced the idea of the jury here. You know, ultimately, what jury is going to 
to look favorably on the wet bandits here or their estate. I, I don't think you're going to find it. I think, I think Kevin is going to get the benefit of jury nullification for pretty much anything that that gets sent his way. Uh, maybe not the parents. Maybe not the parents, but Kevin, uh, I like Kevin's chances. So somehow the wet bandits are still alive after all of this, and they're still able and determined to chase after Kevin. But for the first time, Kevin picks up the phone and he calls the police. Tells them he's being robbed, except he gives them the neighbor's address for some reason. Marv nearly catches Kevin in the hallway at the top of the stairs, but Kevin escapes by putting his brother's wayward tarantula, who happens to be walking by, on Marv's face. And he screams, and then the spider crawls onto Harry. Marv stands over him with his crowbar, and he swings down on him with a crushing blow right on Harry's sternum in a failed attempt to kill the spider. So now we see another potential problem here. Kevin could have called the police. That's true. Yeah. Right? It, it finally occurred to him, uh, you know, well in at this late stage in the movie to call the police, right? He could have done that at the outset. The other thing I, I, I was just reminded when, you know, you mentioned he was in church and came mm-hmm. back um, mm-hmm. to engage the, uh, the wet bandits. And wh- I believe when he was in church, he had a conversation with his neighbor in he church. He did. <laughs> Um, yet another, well, he's not afraid of at that point. No, no. Yet another opportunity to, uh, you know, to, to have avoided, uh, all this carnage and, um, that has taken place. But so in, in the facts that you just read the other, you know, one of the interesting things that comes up is now you have a potential claim by one of the wet bandits against the other, mm-hmm. yeah. right. Um, for, uh, for crushing his sternum with a crowbar. <laughs> um, Which with Mitch, Mythbusters also concluded would have killed poor Harry. <laughs> <laughs> His heart does no. not survive that, that blow. <laughs> so now we've got another wrongful death uh, lawsuit, right? Coming across. Um, yeah. I mean, was that, is that really a reasonable, a reasonable use of a, uh, of force to uh, to try and free your companion from a tarantula, um, which I I think while while tarantulas can bite, I think very rarely are they ever fatal, right? Um, so, and a crowbar, really? I mean, I'd take some pretty good aim to to whack a spider with a crowbar. So, I, I think there's a strong claim um by the by the wet bandit with the crushed sternum or as you said this mythbusters say now deceased wet wet bandit yeah i think you're in the gross gross negligence reckless indifference to human life kind of territory with with that act there that uh potential murder charge for marv uh definitely Potential uh, tort claim with punitive damages, um, even for his, by his, uh, his criminal buddy. Yeah. Well, right. I think liability here is, uh, you got a pretty strong case on liability, hitting the, 
your fellow burglar with the crowbar. It doesn't seem like it, there's really an excuse for that. And uh, yeah, it's wrongful death or it's severe injury. So you've got the liability side of this covered. But again, looking at this as a lawyer, uh, what are the damages and are they collectible? I mean, the damages number might be high, but are we going to be able to collect it here from uh, from Mars? And uh, I don't know. What is that that he's got in the van? Is that where we're going to be trying to satisfy the judgment, taking some of those items? And if they're stolen, those probably have to be returned to the rightful owners. So, you know, what assets does he really have? Uh, that van, maybe take the van, but I don't know how much that's worth. So uh, that's what I'd be looking at. I think, yeah, I, I would take this case against Marv for uh, for hitting Harry with the crowbar. But uh, where are we going to collect the judgment from? That's that's where you really got to worry about yeah. this one. Excellent point. I think you're also potentially dealing with a causation problem because this is not the first thing that's happened to poor Harry in the last five minutes. Mm. Harry has had suffered multiple injuries that are, that are not caused by Marv directly, although query whether there might be any uh, sort of a felony felony murder kind of uh, liability there, but putting that aside, um, who's to say that, that Harry didn't actually expire from the, the crushing head blow from the paint can 30 seconds earlier. So maybe it's some difficulty there. Yeah. Uh, so after escaping from Marv though, Kevin rides a zip line from the attic over to his treehouse. Perhaps owing to the head trauma they've sustained, the wet bandits decide to climb out along the line to get to Kevin instead of going downstairs and chasing him that way. When they're hanging out over the void, Kevin cuts the line with some clippers and they go crashing down into the house. Another surely devastating injury. The movie wraps up with Kevin running to the neighbor's house where he's finally caught by the wet bandits. Harry and Marv threaten to torture Kevin in a variety of ways, and Harry is just about to bite one of Kevin's fingers off. But Kevin's rescued just in the nick of time by the previously mentioned creepy neighbor who deals each of the wet bandits a final blow to the head with his snow shovel before carting Kevin off saying, come on, let's get you home. And then Kevin watches from the window as the cops arrive and cart off the wet bandits. The next morning, Kevin wakes up to his family arriving home. They're reunited just in time to spend Christmas together. So at some point here, does Kevin's license to maim expire? Or can he just do all of this? Well, these guys should be barely able to function at this point. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's impressive how uh, it, it's impressive how how much they've been able to sustain and still uh, still keep pursuing uh, pursuing Kevin. So um, the other impressive thing is that Kevin can cut a fairly thick rope with uh, with I think just you know landscaping or gardening shears in in one you know one little swipe. So. Yeah. That's that's um, also a good point. He's pretty strong, strong little pretty, little yeah, lad. Pretty good for an eight year old. Um, <laughs> you know, the 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 real force here that you're talking is is Kevin cutting the line and and the bandits um, 
slamming against the house, right? And again, apparently coming away from that fairly unscathed. Uh, you know, the, the, I think one of the interesting things that muddies this is, yes, you could argue the bandits are pursuing Kevin, but you could also argue that they've had enough and they're just trying to leave, right? Because they, mm. they are exiting the house. Um, Excellent point. But, but I think that the most interesting thing of, of this part of the movie to me is, is the creepy neighbor now coming to be a good Samaritan. And under the theory that no good deed goes unpunished, right? As a good Samaritan, he inflicts what appears to be the knockout blow on both of the wet bandits, right? Yeah. And what liability now, because he may be the deep pocket as far as what the wet bandits can go after, what liability does this uh, Good Samaritan neighbor now have for, for coming in and, and using uh, maybe excessive force to, uh, to take them out finally? Um, and I say excessive, I mean, nothing else could take them out. So <laughs> it almost by definition has to be excessive, right? Well, that's a good point. Although yep. I guess you could say the neighbor, how would he know that unless he's been watching all of this unfold, he yeah. comes in and his first move is to whack these guys with the snow shuffle. <laughs> Maybe uh, he could have tried something a little bit less drastic, uh, at least from his perspective. Why would he think that's the first, uh, first step to take? And the other point that I think that you made that's uh, really interesting is at a certain point, Kevin's no longer in his house. I mean, he's in the treehouse for part of this. And so you might look at that as, is he still, is that effectively still being in the home or he's in the immediate surroundings of the home? So does he still have that same self-defense privilege that a person has when they're in their own home? Arguably he does, but maybe that's a gray area. But certainly once he's in the neighbor's home across the street, even if it's self-defense uh, that he's engaging in, it's it's a little bit different because he's not in his own home. And so should he instead have been just trying to, get out of there. I mean, earlier in the movie, we saw him run into the church when he had an early encounter with the bandits uh, to seek some safe refuge somewhere. Maybe he should have done that instead of um, making a last stand at the neighbor's house. So what the movie leaves unclear, a couple things. How did Kevin get home? The neighbor apparently took him home and left him home alone again for the night. <laughs> How do we know this? Kevin wakes up and his parents come home and he looks out the window and his neighbor is over saying hello to his, his children. His neighbor's been busy doing other things. Now this guy has neglect, neglected this child, has not called the police, hasn't even pointed out to the police that came to get the wet bandits. That oh by the way, they were about to <laughs> to bite the fingers off this child who I just took and left home alone again. Well, and and what you know? Wow, I I wasn't thinking of that, but now that you bring it up, Sean, the police were now there again because mm -hmm. they were hauling away the wet bandits, right? Um, so what what negligence negligence do they have or duty did they have to at least inquire? Hey, what? Whose child are you, right? Because the creepy neighbor is fairly, 
he's he's pretty old to be the father of an eight-year-old, right? <laughs> um, so, you know, what duty does his police have to step in and, and not just haul away the wet bandits, but inquire as far as what the surroundings were, how did all this take place and go down? And wait a minute, you're, you're a child and you're home alone? Um, oops, wish we would have figured that out, you know, three days ago or whatever it was. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think, you know, bringing it full circle, you're, you're right back to the, uh, to the police and just the, you know, the significant amount of negligence and not carrying out their duty um, again. Yeah, they they just leave. They're there for another probably thirty seconds. These are the, yeah. the quickest in and out cops you've ever seen. <laughs> they yeah. arrest them, throw them in the back, and then they take off. Um, yeah. I'm thinking too about the you know. I think there's an alternate ending. There has to be an alternate ending to this movie out here, right? Because Kevin, how does Kevin get back in the house? Does he walk up? Does the neighbor carrying Kevin? walk up the icy steps, which are clearly not able to be navigated on their own, right? <laughs> Kevin or he or both of them are injured severely in that, in that scene. Uh, they can't go to the basement steps for the same reason. If they walk in the kitchen door, they're going to get burned by a, a blowtorch. So how how does this play out i think there's an alternate ending where kevin is seriously injured and the and the uh neighbor has just left him and is you know said that ah, it's not my fault well i i was gonna say as you go through all of that it makes me think about the final scene or scenes of the movie where he wakes up in bed and he comes down and his his mother shows up and then his extended family show back up at the house and aside from finding the gold tooth uh on the floor <laughs> the house seems to be in very good condition. Kevin's the, the little Christmas tree he's put up is there and the stockings and the milk and cookies he left for Santa. That's all shown. But were there any other booby traps? Because uh, it could have mm. there could have been a really tragic ending where his mother shows up and a couple of these booby traps hadn't been triggered yet. Uh, could have been a world of, world of hurt. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> yeah. thank goodness that didn't yeah. happen. I think this was originally more like a dark comedy or, <laughs> or, yeah. or a tragedy. <laughs> Right, the perils of setting the booby traps. I think that could have been a that could have been the main yeah. lesson. It, yes. it is, Brett. It's an excellent point. It is impressive how uh, how clean the house um, becomes. Right, you know, no sign of paint cans, no sign of cars on the floor, no sign of of a bunch of broken ornaments. How quickly he was able to get tar off the uh, off the stairs. <laughs> um, miraculously the ice <laughs> melted over the course of the night you know a little sudden warm had, spell <laughs> yeah they must have had a heat wave during the evening that night while he was sleeping yeah. um you know a lot of things that just uh went back but you're right the alternate ending um you know i think we're all playing it through in our minds now as far as what could have happened right Either Kevin, total carnage yeah. Total carnage, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> well, no we one don't know, spared. actually. When the movie ends, I mean, I think the very last thing that happens is Kevin's brother goes up into his room and sees that his room has been trashed, the bookshelves have been broken, the tarantulas escaped, etc. What we don't know, there are other rooms maybe of the house that we haven't seen when uh, when the movie ends and what other traps might be lurking. 
Yeah, that that does cast a little doubt on uh, Kevin's ability to play Mister Clean and and fix it all up, right? If if uh, his brother's room is is still disheveled, the rest of the house I think is probably that way too. Yeah. yeah. So which which character is most fortunate that nothing terrible happened to Kevin? Hmm. Well, that's funny. I well, I think his parents are probably the most relieved, given that they did leave him behind, and getting back to him was quite an ordeal. I think they have a lot to be happy from about. a liability or legal perspective. Which hmm. which character, though? I, I'm going with the police. They were they they they, they, they fell down on the responsibilities at the beginning. Um, they fell down on the responsibilities at, at the end. Um, I mean, they were successful in being able to haul away the wet bandits, but only because they were they were apprehended by an eight year old boy and his elderly creepy neighbor. Um, so, yeah, I, I like that answer. Yes, uh, that's a multi million dollar lawsuit against the city. <laughs> well, I'm going to go. I'm going to go outside the box here, just thinking about who might have faced the most liability and it was averted. Maybe it's the wet bandits, because even though they're now facing a lot of burglary charges and property crimes, as far as we know, they haven't really hurt anyone. If they had uh, bitten Kevin's fingers off and done these other horrible things to him that they were on the verge of doing, they'd be looking at uh, much more serious penalties, potentially. So ironically, by, um, by being caught when they were, they they avoided much worse, uh, a much worse fate because I think they would not have gotten away with it. They didn't seem like the kind of people that would have been able to uh, take Kevin out and um, avoid being caught. It's a good point. It's a good point. There's a there's also a happy, a very happy homeowners insurance representative <laughs> here, <laughs> somehow because somehow none of this turns into a claim against uh, against the insurer. Well. This has been fun. I, uh, I for one, will never watch Home Alone in the in the same light again. Um, might have to ruin some other movies in the future. I'm going to give us a collective 3.8. I was going to say 3.9, but I think we took it down there at the end. A 3.8 for our law school exam skills. Nice, nice job, guys. What's that out of? Is, is that out of 10? Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> no, these are law school exam. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's uh, out so of four. We got a solid grade. Oh, scale, right? Okay. Yes. Yes. All right. All right. Okay. That's uh, well, Brett, you 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 had three point seven of that. I think I contributed maybe a tenth. So <laughs> no, no. <laughs> maybe Brett would have had a three nine had I not been on. So, uh, well, so maybe you, we can Brett, team up. For... <laughs> I I like. I think you had a lot of good thoughts about this, and maybe we can take on the. Uh, the beanie people, the utility company, and uh, all the other deep pockets. That'll <laughs> yes. be the sequel. <laughs> well, but seriously, thanks to you both for taking time away on, on Christmas Eve to join us today. I really appreciate it. No, my pleasure. So thank you, Brett. Thank you, Sean, for, uh, for having me on. Thank you. Big thanks to Tim Johnson and Brett Hemmed for joining us today. Join us again next time on the Lawyerly Podcast. If you like what you hear, give us a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Production services for today's episode are by four hours of sleep. 
and the music for the show is by Rhythmic Revival. Until next time, I'm your host, Sean Kennedy of Herrera Kennedy. <laughs>